Before we come to our scripture passage this morning, allow me, please, on your behalf to thank our sextons and members who have so beautifully decorated the sanctuary this year. There is an awful lot of work goes into this during the week between one Sunday and another, between hanging banners and all of our poinsettia and lights and our choirs. Uh, the Angermeyer family this morning for assisting us. Uh, and, of course, our our ladies quartet who sang spectacularly Mary did you know that's possibly the best rendition I've ever heard of that so ladies thank you it really is a joy to gather on this fourth Sunday in Advent and worship in a place that reminds us so much of the incarnation of Christ and so that's our topic this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 2 so please do so as we read verses 8 through 15 And you'll find it on page 1591 of the Pew Bible, page 1591, Luke chapter 2. We break into this midsection in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And Luke records these words for us. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This morning I want to begin by asking you to participate with me in that old television program, Name That Tune. Do you remember that? Is it still on television? I haven't seen it for some time, but I suspect most of us are familiar with it. And I've asked John this morning if he could play for us three notes, three opening notes of a well-known Christmas carol. And then I expect you to please call out what you think it is, John. Well done, good. John, give us two notes because it gets increasingly more difficult. Oh, come all you faithful. Yeah, I was almost going to slip in a Desti Fidelis, which I think we're close enough. And our final one, and this is where it gets really tough, one note, please, John. Joy to the world. Well done, whoever got that. I should have known it was at the high end of the scale, so John, forgive me. One of the reasons I think that Name That Tune was so popular for so many years was this, that you had to listen intently in order to enjoy what was going on. And over these last few Sundays together, we have been spending time on Sunday morning under the overall title of The Melody of Christmas. And it's only when you listen intently 
to what the Scripture is teaching us. It's only when you begin to focus your heart and mind and soul on all that God was doing that the joy of Christmas comes through. And that's where we've been over these last few weeks. Most of you, of course, are now aware that in what we call Luke's infancy narratives, Luke's chapter 1 and 2, there are four prayers, four spectacular prayers that have become hymns down through the centuries. And of course, the first is the Magnificat, which we haven't looked at this year. We've looked at it in the past, but not this year. And it was Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And then last Sunday morning, we looked at uh, the Benedictus, excuse me, two Sundays, Three weeks ago, the Benedictus from Zechariah's song. Uh, And then last Sunday morning, we jumped forward to the Nunc Dimittis in chapter 2 with Simeon taking the Christ child in his arms and saying those immortal words, Sovereign Lord. And now we come to Gloria in Excelsis. And it comes, of course, from the passage we've just read. And we know, of course, a number of things about Luke. And when we began a few weeks ago, we said there are distinctives about Luke's writing that you don't find with the others. And this opening chapter, or the opening chapter rather, of Luke's gospel is the longest chapter in the New Testament, 80 verses. It is packed with literary motifs of journey and activity and movement and intensity. It is also have all the hallmarks of Luke's gospel, which focuses on prayer, and Luke uh, deliberately does that. And we also said at the beginning of our studies that the end of the Old Testament back here, Malachi, the beginning of the New Testament, and that intertestamental period was 400 years in length. And the people in Israel were tempted to think that God has been silent, unproductive, and inactive during those 400 years. But we learned, in fact, our first Sunday of Advent that the very opposite was the case that God was shaping and directing and moving entire nations and continents in order to bring to pass his eternal decrees. And so with all of that being said, as we come into chapter 2, of course we know that Luke is a historian of the New Testament, and chapter 2 opens with Luke setting everything in a historical, geographical, uh, and cultural context. And we've touched on all of that uh, in recent weeks. And now this morning, as we come to chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, the birth of Christ is written in an almost understated manner. It is, in fact, only focused on in three verses. Three verses. Verse 4 to 7. The other thing, and some of you may have noticed this already, that Jesus isn't even named in those verses. Isn't that incredible? After all that Luke has done in developing his narrative and building and building and building to a climax, the great drama of the birth of Christ, and he's not even mentioned by Luke. And I think Luke doesn't mention him for this reason, because others mention him. And others draw attention to him. And others focus on him. And he's about to write the longest gospel of all. Not so much in chapters, but in terms of verses. Luke is the longest. And he's about to bring his focus right where it belongs to the person of Jesus. But at chapter, excuse me, at chapter 2, verse 8, things change. And recorded for us, 
in an unprecedented manner is the shepherds and the angels. And I suspect most of us, over the last few weeks, when we've been thinking about Christmas, are comfortable focusing on Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah. And we like focusing on the shepherds and the wise men and the stable and the innkeeper, although he's not mentioned in Scripture. We kind of like to focus on him and we like to focus on all that's going on. And it's a great joy and a thrill to do that during the Christmas season. But there are words in the passage before us that I think quite honestly we avoid. And we avoid them quite deliberately. Because there's not much by way of comfort and joy. In fact, it's the opposite. And the verses leave us a little unsettled and unnerved, hesitant, And quite honestly, we'd rather just kind of move quickly on through them and turn to the rest of the Christmas story. And in verses 8 and 9, we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that today in the town of Savior, excuse me, in the town of David, a Savior has been born and he is Christ the Lord. And in those verses we see what Isaiah spoke about. Isaiah chapter 9, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God was quietly slipping into the world unobtrusively and unnoticed, filling his or fulfilling his eternal plans and purposes. So far you're saying, okay, Richard, I'm with you. I see all that. I get the context. I understand where we've been over the last few weeks. But where are the, what is this passage that makes us uncomfortable? What are the words that Luke uses that makes us just a little uncertain? Well, look at them again. They come from verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Folks, please understand this. This is not something I'm adding to Scripture. It's right there. And you don't read of the glory of God too often in Scripture when it comes to humans interacting with the glory of God. I can't think of, in all of Scripture, maybe more than eight or ten occasions where this takes place. Where the curtain of heaven is pulled back And God in His wonder and glory is revealed to humanity. And when it takes place, this is often the response. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Not just uncomfortable, not just unsettled, a little unnerved. They were terrified. Why? What is going on here? Remember the context. 
the shepherds were out in the field nearby, and if you travel to Bethlehem today, you can still go to shepherd's field, they suggest, and tradition tells us it's there. It could be half a mile or a mile in either direction, but that's where they tell us when you visit. And think of what they were doing. For those shepherds, it was just an ordinary, everyday activity for them. The sun had gone down. They'd made sure in the course of the early evening that the sheep were fed and safe and watered and were settling down for the night. It was the most natural thing in the world for them to do. They were going about their everyday business. But please understand this, because that's the key. It was the most natural thing in the world for them to do. And when the natural comes into contact with the supernatural, you're always going to provoke a response. Because here was God in all of His glory. And the shepherds felt and sensed the wonder and the supernatural dynamic of it all. And they were terrified. Terrified. It's no wonder we'd rather focus on innkeepers and wise men and gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Because the glory of God leaves us feeling a little uncomfortable. Earlier in our service, we were reminded of the words from John chapter 14. When John is writing as an older man, 60 years after the death of Christ, he has had a long time to think of, what he would, of how he would begin his gospel. And it begins in a spectacular fashion. And we saw it in our call to worship this morning. At the end of our pastoral prayer, we read these words. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then please notice what John writes. He writes this. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here is the shepherds on the hillside going through the self-same experience of glimpsing in that brief moment of exaltation, fully realizing the wonder and the transcendent majesty of God. And I suspect those shepherds felt that they were paddling, just paddling at the edges of a great ocean. And that's the character of God. We will never be able to plumb its depths this side of eternity. Rich in love and goodness and grace. Deep, infinite, unable to fully comprehend all that was taking place. And please understand this. The centerpiece of what those shepherds experienced Experienced, began with glimpsing the glory of God. Allow me please to be personal for a moment and to probe and probe a little deeper if I may. What would you give for such an experience? 
In Exodus chapter 33, Moses dares, dares to say to God, let me see your glory. And God refuses. And he says, Moses, let me hide you in the cleft of a rock. And when I pass by, you'll get something of it. A sense of God's presence. And I have to confess this morning that I would be reluctant to offer such a prayer because I'm not sure that I could take God in all His glory. Infinite, eternal, immeasurable, incomprehensible, unchanging in His being and wisdom and power and holiness and goodness and love and truth. I'm not sure I could take it. And I suspect I would be exactly like the shepherds, terrified. And why on earth would we be terrified? Where is the comfort and joy of the Christmas season in all of this? It's not there yet. It's coming. But they are so overwhelmed. And why were they terrified? And John in his prologue talks of a similar experience. For the Word came into the world and the world could not understand it because men liked their darkness and were afraid of the light. And I suspect that's true for each of us. Should we ever find ourselves like the shepherds and like Isaiah and like Peter, James and John in the Mount of Transfiguration and like Moses in Exodus? If we ever found ourselves in the undiluted, unvarnished, unadulterated presence of the divine, transcendent majesty of God, what would it do to us? It would almost crush us. Because when we find ourselves there, we are reminded of the crippling, debilitating, deprived nature of our own sin. And when darkness is exposed to the light, that's the point we understand the depravity of our own sin. That's why we would be terrified because all of the blemishes and the spots and the sin come to the surface. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus worked His first miracle in front of His disciples, Peter took one look at Him and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That was his immediate instinctive response. He could not stand or he could not be comfortable dwelling in the presence of God. And the shepherds that morning or that evening rather were exactly the same. Exactly the same. You may be saying, Richard, I think I'm beginning to get that. I'm beginning to grasp it. But tell me exactly what you mean when you talk about the glory of God. It's one thing for the shepherds to experience it, but what does it mean for us today? Help me understand that. Unwrap it for me a little. Well, when the Scripture talks of the glory of God, They use a variety of words which bring with them connotations. And those words begin with weightiness. There's a heaviness, 
and a weightiness about the glory of God. And as you begin to continue reading through the scriptures, that weightiness and heaviness changes to value and to character and to significance and magnitude and majesty. And when you get a sense of that, then you begin to understand the gravitas and the magnitude of the glory and wonder of His love. That's what's going on when we talk of the glory of God. Value and worth and significance and magnitude and majesty. Notice how the angel addresses them. He says, Do not be afraid. Isn't that interesting that that's his opening words? Do not be afraid. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. And for those of you who know your scriptures well, you will know that nowhere else in scripture do those three titles come together apart from this passage in Luke. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Not a friend, not a pal, although he certainly is that, but he's so much more. He is a Savior. Emmanuel, God with us. Remember Matthew's Gospel? God with us. And you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. A Savior has been born and he is Christ the Lord. Three titles. One is not enough. Couldn't begin to sum it up. Two who begins to do it justice but doesn't. And so, Savior and Christ the Lord right here. And the shepherds caught a glimpse of the blinding glory and perfection of God. And I think for the rest of their lives, that experience was burnt deep into their very souls. They would never get over it. Never get over it. They couldn't be the same. Remember the words of the hymn writer? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as a man to ma- with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And so the shepherds that evening make their way to Bethlehem with a fresh and a new appreciation of the character and wonder and majesty of God. And of course, they go to Bethlehem and see the Christ child. But one other thing happens before they go. One other thing prepares them for what's to come. And it is this great number of the angelic host. And they gather together and bring praise and glory and say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Glory to God in the highest. And how does the passage end? 
with this overwhelming, unprecedented experience. They go to Bethlehem. They meet with Mary and Joseph. And they are in awe and wonder at all that has taken place. Luke adds at verse 20, he writes, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. Just as they had been told. Let me pause for a second and seek to apply all that we've learned this morning as we come into this Christmas week. As we move towards Thursday, Christmas Eve, and gathering here for Christmas Eve service and enjoy all of the splendor and the wonder of the Christmas season. Meals with family and friends, Christmas parties perhaps with co-workers, some in your neighborhood, as you receive cards and buy those last-minute gifts and presents, and you think again of the wise men, and the angels, Mary and Joseph and the stable, you will not be able to name the entire Christmas tune if you leave out the glory of God. That Christmas Eve, the angels had no idea what was coming their way. When they left, remember the passage, they glorified and praised God. That's another distinctive to Luke's gospel. At the end of his gospel, in fact, the closing words are these. And they returned to Jerusalem praising God and remained there in the temple. Do you remember our Presbyterian forefathers in writing the shorter catechism? summed up their very reason for existence when they said, what is the chief end of man? Is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And although His glory is at times unsettling, unnerving, makes us uncomfortable, that is a good thing. A good thing when we experience Him in His holiness and His wonder and His love and His grace and His mercy. And this week, let me encourage you and plead with you with all that I can, take some time out and spend it with Him, bringing praise and glory and the adoration of your heart and mind and soul. And enjoy what our forefathers encouraged us to do, to glorify Him and enjoy Him. And my prayer for each one of us this Christmas season is that we would be able to enjoy Him by glorifying Him. And may God in all of His wonder and beauty and holiness and majesty enable us this Christmas season to get a fresh glimpse and a new understanding of His glory. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, how we wish 
We had been with the shepherds that first Christmas Eve to be exposed to your unveiled glory. Father, we in turn would have been able, we hope, to say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. And Father, please, in this Christmas week, take us, please, to these deep things of God and enable us, please, to enjoy you. Father, as we close this morning, we pray for our children and our grandchildren, some in different parts of the world, and may they enjoy the wonders of this season. But most of all, may they enjoy the wonder of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing